Song of Solomon chapter 5 and verse 8. The Bible says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick of love. Now, that does not mean that she's tired of being in love. We would say, when we say we're sick of something, that means we don't want no more of it. But what that means right there is that it is the love that is causing her sickness. It is a longing of her soul. It is a desire to be with her beloved. Now, we looked at last time, the first part of chapter 5, we understand that there, is, there has been a separation in their fellowship. You remember, he approached the door, his voice knocking on the door, and she uh, delayed, she declined his invitation to open the door and fellowship with him. And by the time she had changed her mind, uh, he was already gone and he had withdrawn himself. And so there is a longing in her heart, the fellowship, to be with her beloved. And that is what she is saying. She looks around at these daughters of Jerusalem, these other young ladies that would be her companions, her peers, if you will. And she tells them, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am sick of love. And they respond in verse number nine. The daughters of Jerusalem respond to her. And here's what they say. What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women. What is thy beloved more than another beloved, that thou dost so charge us? And then the Shulamite woman responds to their question. She answers their question. What makes him so special that we should help you find him? And she responds in verse 10 and says, My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with beryl, and his belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marbles set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. And then she sums it up with this, Yea, He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Drop down into chapter 6 and look at verse 1, just one verse out of chapter 6. Whither is thou thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek Him with thee. So those daughters of Jerusalem respond to her response and they say, All right, let's go find him. Whatever she said, whatever all this stuff is, a little mushy to me, but whatever. All these things that she's talking about in these verses, 
It convinced them. It drew them into wanting and desiring to find her beloved. And I want to preach on that thought just for a moment. Last time we preached on the drama of fellowship, the back and forth of fellowship with her beloved. And this morning I want to preach on the drawing of fellowship. The drawing of fellowship. And how, here's my thought this morning, how that when somebody is desirous to fellowship with God and when somebody takes it upon themselves to have that kind of relationship with God and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is, uh, that is intense and that is passionate, it cannot help but have a drawing effect on other people. Other people see it and they are convinced that uh, yes, your beloved is worth the trouble. Yes, he is worth finding. Yes, he is worth following. And I just want to say in here this morning that yes, he is worth searching for and he is worth following and he is worth serving and he is worth fellowshipping with and he is worth loving and he is worth being with and he is the most wonderful thing that ever can be. In fact, I'll say along with the Shulamite woman this morning that he is all together lovely. You can't praise him enough. You can't brag on him enough. You can't say enough about him. Whatever, however high we try to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to know that he's better than that and he's beyond that and he's greater than that. This woman is bragging on Solomon but even Jesus said of himself in the New Testament, he said that a greater than Solomon is is here. And I'm here to tell you that this relationship in this story, it is wonderful. It points us to, uh, it, 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 it reminds us of the wonderful the arrangement that marriage is and the wonderful union that marriage is and the wonderful fellowship marriage is. Listen, if you don't have wonderful fellowship in your marriage, I feel sorry for you. Amen. Amen. No wonder. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that, that it's better to dwell in the wilderness than it is with an angry and a contentious woman. No wonder some of you men go hunting so much. Amen. If I was married to a contentious woman, I'd, want to, I'd rather be in the wilderness too. Amen. I'm telling you, it's good when things are good at home. Amen. It's wonderful when things are sweet at home and there's good fellowship, no doubt about that. And I thank God for that in my home and in our life. I thank God for marital affection. But this story points us to something that is far greater than marital affection. It points us to heavenly affection, to heavenly love. And there is one that is greater than Solomon. He's, chi he's chiefest among 10,000. He is altogether lovely. He is the most wonderful one in the whole wide world. And you never will be able to quite describe how wonderful He is. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to our text, we are reminded of that. We're reminded of that greatest love that has ever been known. The greatest love story that you could ever have is 
the love between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not a one-time deal. It's not He loved you and so He died for you and so He saved you and you called upon Him. But it is an ongoing thing, isn't it? Our love story with the Lord, it is an ongoing thing. How many of you understand when you get married, there is fellowship that is just beginning. A, a wedding ceremony is not the beginning and the end. It is, just a, it is just a point in the entire relationship. And so it is with Christ. When you get saved, He loved you before you ever loved Him. He loved you before the foundation of the world. You say, try to explain it. Well, I can't. I just believe it. Amen. But when we got saved, that was just a point in our relationship. We come into the come into this thing with Him. But yet, the love is ongoing and He loves you. He loves you on your good days and your bad days. and He loves you when you're up and He loves you when you're down. And He loves you all the time. And He wants us to enjoy fellowship with Him. He wants to sit around the table with us. He wants to spend time with us. He he wants to talk to us. He wants us to talk to Him. And there is an ongoing relationship that is here. This fellowship, in fact, that's kind of what I have... Uh, that's how the Lord's been speaking to my heart from this book here recently. Is just that it is a story of fellowship. It is uh, the husband fellowshipping with his wife and the wife fellowshipping with her husband. And that's the way our life with the Lord ought to be. It ought to be a constant, uh, constant state of fellowship with Him. How many of you know what it's like to be out of fellowship with the Lord? It's not a good thing. You'll never be out of relationship, but you can be out of fellowship with Him. So when we come to our text, I guess we could outline it like this if you want to. Verse number 8 of chapter 5, that's the appeal. She, she charges the daughters of Jerusalem to help her find her beloved. And then these daughters of Jerusalem in verse number 9, they give an argument. So we have the appeal. And then in verse number 9, we have the argument. They push back on her command and they push back on her with questions of His worthiness. What makes Him so special? Why should we drop everything that we're doing? Why should we rearrange our schedule? Why should we reprioritize our day to help you find your beloved? What makes Him so wonderful? And then you have the answer. And that's in verses 10 through 16. She gives the answer and she goes into a detailed answer why her beloved is worth looking for. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6 you have the agreement. They agree with her. The alignment uh, 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 the, the assignment, whatever you want to call it, they're convinced to join the search. And now these daughters of Jerusalem are seeking the shepherd where once it was just her. Now she has a crowd. Now she has a group of people because her answer was so pointed and it was so passionate and it was so powerful that it caused other people to change their mind about what they thought about her shepherd. There was something about her love for the shepherd that caused others to be drawn to him as well. Even those that were not completely convinced before. And my question, my thought this morning is just simply this. Is there anything is there anything about your life at all and your fellowship with God that is drawing other people in? Is there anything about how much you love God and your passion of your life that is drawing other people in, making, want, making other people want to know Him and want to follow Him and want to worship Him and to want to serve Him? Is there anything about your fellowship with God that has a drawing effect? 
on a lost and a dying world. Because you see, that's exactly where we're at. We're the ones making an appeal, aren't we? Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night when I preach, I'm making an appeal. Seek the shepherd. Follow the shepherd. Be with the shepherd. Love the shepherd. Find the shepherd. And I'm making an appeal. When we go out into our jobs and in our neighborhoods and in our families, I hope somewhere, some way, you're making an appeal. Say, follow the shepherd. I hope you pass out a gospel track. I hope you'll tell somebody about Jesus. I hope you'll find somebody that is lost in this world and tell them about the shepherd and we ought to be making an appeal that is the commission of the church that is the command of the church that is our charge to the world is to know Jesus Christ make him known connect other people to the shepherd that is our task that is our assignment and as we make this appeal to the world there's always the argument that comes back why? Why should I do that? Why should I find Him? Why should I follow Him? Why should I know Him? Why should I seek Him? Why should I search for Him? Why should I reprioritize my life? Isn't that what the world's asking us? That's the question that even if people don't say it with their mouth, that's the question I get while I'm preaching. I preach to you, I give you, I make an appeal, I make a statement, I, I, make, I give a charge, I give a command, and it's not mine, it's from the Word of God. But I may give these things to you, and I may say, hey, here's what you need to do with your life. And inevitably, the question is going to go through your mind, why? Why should I change what I'm doing? Why should I live differently than what I'm doing? Why should I change the course of my life? Why should I change the priorities of my life? What should I do? What makes Him so special that I should change my life and fit it around Him? And she gives an answer. Listen to me. You better have an answer for that. Because I'm going to tell you what, that question they ask her, that's a legitimate question. I don't think it's rebellion. I don't think it's sarcasm. I think it's legitimate. What makes him so special that we should search for him? And this woman begins to give her Answer. And whatever she says, it changes their mind. It convinces them because they join the search in chapter 6 and verse 1. Let me say a couple things about her answer and then I'll be done. Number one, let me say something about the overflowing nature of her answer. The overflowing nature of her answer. I thought about this. I thought about her answer. It just bubbled right out of her. It spilled out of her because she was 
full all the way to the brim. She was filled up with love for her shepherd. She was filled up with love for her spouse. And so when they asked her, it was like she was sitting on go. It's like she was ready just to boom, just to jump out there and give her that, give them that answer just as soon. It's almost like she was glad they asked. That answer just bubbled out of her and just overflowed out of her. I, I tell you one thing I hate when you go through the drive-through at the at the Chick-fil-A or anywhere else. A lot of times when they fix your drink, do they ever do this to your drink? Do they ever just fill that cup up? Either they fill it halfway up or they fill it up like with seven ounces more than what that cup's supposed to hold. And then they slap a lid on it. Now, I used to work at Chick-fil-A, and I used to put lids on cups and all that. I did it all day long and fixed drinks and stuff. And you're supposed to, you got to leave just a little bit around the top because that lid, it goes in like that. It comes in just a little bit. Y'all know what I'm talking about? This is the stupidest illustration ever, but I'm going to give it, all right? It just comes in just a little bit, just like that. And so when you stick that lid, when you take that lid and you stick it on the cup, you've got to leave a little bit of space, the ice and the liquid and all that. Or what's going to happen is that is when you put that lid on, that lid has just become pregnant. And I hate when they, I hate when they hand me a drink in the drive-thru and the lid looks like this. It's not supposed to look like this. It's supposed to look like that. You're supposed to do this. Because you know, you know what's going to happen, don't you? As soon as you take that straw and you push it in the hole right there, it just goes all over the place. And that makes me mad. It's because I live in America and I'm spoiled to death, all right? Third world, I mean, first world problems, right? Not third world problems, first world problems. That thing's just ready to come. You know, that's the way we ought to be for the Lord. That's what Psalmist said. He said, my cup runneth over. We ought to be so full that just the least amount of movement. I'm talking about it don't take much to get you to tell what you love about Jesus, why you love Jesus. You ought to be ready. You ought to be sitting on go. You ought to be so full of Him and so full of His love and so full of the knowledge of the Lord that when somebody asks you anything, you are ready to go. This girl had 50. Teen reasons just waiting and like a machine gun. She said, she was just ready for somebody to ask her about her lover because she was ready to say everything that was on her heart. You know, Peter said something about that. I love this verse, 1 Peter 3.15. Here's what he said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Peter said, be ready to give an answer. Be ready to give an answer. He said, there ought to be something in our lives. We ought to have sanctified the Lord God in our heart. We ought to hold Him in such a high regard. He ought to be such a... Man, He ought to have such a special place in our heart that people can see it and people know it when they say, man, there's something there's something odd about you. There's something weird about you. Why do you go to church like that? Why do you give to missions like that? Why do you live like that? Why don't you go here? Why don't you do that? Man, we ought to have it bubbling up in our hearts so much that we're ready to give out an answer to any man that asks the reason, the hope that's in us. You say, well, nobody ever asked me. I wouldn't say that out loud. Don't be bragging about that. Because there's nothing weird about you, and there's nothing new about you, and there's nothing different about you. If there's nothing about your life that provokes any questions from this world, you're not living right. Or you don't know Him. 
You're not in love with Him because when you are in love with Him, you will be super weird to this world. And I ain't talking about dressing like Little House on the Prairie either. I'm talking about you're just going to be so out of step. You're going to be so out of sync. You're going to be so out of sorts. People think, what in the world is wrong with that person? And when they ask, and when they scratch their head, and when they look at you all sideways and funny, like, what in the world? Y'all are the weirdest people that I've ever met. You ought to be ready to give them an answer right then and say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how wonderful He is. Let me tell you how He changed my life. Let me tell you what He's done to me. Let me tell you all about it. And I'm here to tell you, friend, there's something wonderful about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you ought to be able to give an answer. Can you this morning, can you verbalize the reasons why you love Him so? If we were to ask you, why do you love the Lord? Why do you serve Him? Why should I be like you and do what you're doing? Could you give an answer? You got to know them first. If you don't know them, you can't describe them. So it's like people, have you ever, I'm sure some of our school teachers in here can, can testify to this. You ever read a book report and you realize they didn't read the book? This was a good book. This was a long book. This was a great book. This book had characters in it. Because they got to get like 10 sentences or whatever, you know, 20. Three paragraphs. And it's just general, I mean, general stuff that, I mean, anybody could have pulled out of anywhere about anything, and you read that and say, they didn't read that book. They, didn't, they don't know anything about that book. And can I tell you, that's how I think some Christians are. You talk about Jesus, I'm like, you don't know Him. This girl knew Him. Started talking about, when you start talking about somebody's cheeks and somebody's bushy locks and all that, listen, you know somebody. You know that's right. She started going into detail. She said, he's my beloved. She said at the last part of chapter 5, he's my friend. I know him. I could describe him to you. I mean, I could tell you all about him. I could tell you what he smells like. I can tell you what he looks like. I can tell you how he acts. I can tell you everything that you want to know because I know him. And she had an answer. She had knowledge of him. It's hard to describe somebody you've never seen. It's hard to describe. It's hard, it's hard to have a ready answer for somebody you don't know very well or somebody you haven't seen in a long time. There was the overflowing nature of her answer. It just flowed right out. Not only that, but I see that there was the overwhelming nature of her answer. The overwhelming nature. I love how when she's asked for a good reason, why should we follow Him? What is thy beloved? What is He more than anybody else? Why in the world should we stop what we're doing and go to try and go to find Him? I like how she just gives them 15 answers, just boom, to boom, 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 boom. She overwhelms them with reasons why He is worth the search. Kept talking and talking and talking and talking and talking about her beloved. Have you ever asked anybody a question and they gave you a lot more information than what you were looking for? Have you ever asked me, and you just need a simple answer, just something real easy, just one, 
But they just kept talking and they just kept talking and they kept talking and they kept talking and they tell you about their vacation in 1984 and they tell you about the job they worked, you know, and, and you know, all, I mean, all this kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with any of that, but they kept talking. Now, it's all going on here, but it sounds like she just goes on. I mean, they ask her one question, two questions, and she goes on for one, two, three, four, five, six verses, and, and, it, and it keeps going on, and she overwhelms them with information. It's just an overwhelming answer. I don't know if these girls were looking for all of this. And I know you just let me imagine it the way I want to imagine, alright? When you preach it, you can preach it the way you want to. But I can just imagine while she starts talking about his eyes and, and his head and, and his skin and his cheeks and his hands and his belly. About the time she starts talking about his belly, if I was one of them out there, I'm just like, okay, alright. That's good. We'll go. I think they were already signed up to go around verse 13. That's my opinion. Just opinion. I mean, they were already ready. They were already ready to go. They were already ready to go. All right, we'll go. Just shut up. Just quit. All right, that's good. That's good. All right, all right. And then, you know, maybe a, maybe maybe there's some young ones around there and they're covering up her ears, you know, just a little bit. Talking about his belly and talking about his cheeks and talking about his legs and thinking, man, how far is this girl going to go? Okay, too much information. T-M-I. Do you know what that is? She overwhelmed them. Her answer was pointed. It was specific. It was passionate. Her answer was personal. And she just kept going. And there was a passion in her. And she just overwhelmed. She was over. And the reason she overwhelmed them with answers is because she was overwhelmed. She wasn't trying to, she wasn't trying to uh, uh, give some kind of complicated answer. She was so overwhelmed with the love for her husband that she could not quit talking about him. It was passionate. And can I tell you something? It will never overwhelm anybody else until it overwhelms you. You're never going to convince anybody else until you are first convinced yourself. If it don't touch you, it won't touch them. If it ain't real to you, it won't be real to them. And can I tell you, one of the greatest, one of the greatest detriments to the cause of Christ is impassionate witnessing. Impassionate. You know what that means? No passion. That is one of the worst billboards for Jesus Christ ever. Now, I'm not telling you you got to jump up and down, you got to hoop and holler, you got to scream and shout all the time. But what I'm telling you, if you cannot talk to somebody about the Lord and try to tell them, and there's some excitement in your voice, and they cannot pick up on any passion, or they cannot pick up on anything, listen, I promise you, you're not going to get anywhere with them. There's got to be something real. Is he, here's the thing. Is he real to you? Is he real? You'll never make him real to anybody else until he's real to you. Because if you try to talk to people about the Lord, invite people to church, say, yeah, we'd love for you to come to our church. Yeah, here's a track. Yes. Yeah. Well, what, where's your church at? Nah, over there. Well, what's your church like? Nah, it's all right. <laughs> what's the preacher like? Nah. Listen, it's okay to lie about that, all right? Tell them you got the greatest preacher ever, all right? Just kidding. There's things you could say that, you know, you can answer things without lying, even if you don't have the greatest preacher ever. You can say, well, I'm trying to think of one. I don't know what you can say. Say, well, you know, he's trying. He tries really hard. How about that? That's a good. How's the preacher? Well, he tries really, really hard. I'm going to tell you something. If you're not convinced, say, well, how in the world are you 
going to witness to somebody about Jesus? Say, yeah, Jesus is wonderful. He can change your life. Yeah, it's great. It's great to be saved. It's wonderful. This is the best life ever. So I'm going to tell you, some of y'all look like your driver's license picture right now. You look like your mother-in-law moved in. You look like you've been sucking on persimmons. You look like whatever you're supposed to say. You look, I mean, some people, I mean, listen, they will not, they haven't cracked a smile. If they smiled, I'm talking about their face would just just go to a thousand pieces. It would shatter. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not telling every day ain't the best day, and every day, we're not, it's not Friday every day. I'm not preaching some Joel Osteen stuff, but I'm here to tell you, do you love Jesus? Are you in love with Jesus? And if it don't overwhelm you, it ain't going to overwhelm anybody else. There ought to be people who say, man, that's, that's a little mushy right there. That's too much information. Because we're just so passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ. The overflowing nature of her answer. The overwhelming nature of her answer. Does your fellowship with the Lord, does your love for the Lord, is it drawing anybody at all? Let me give you one last one and I'm done. Not only the overflowing nature of her answer and the overwhelming nature of her answer, but I would say that there is the overcoming nature of her answer. Because if you were to just read verses 10 through 16, and by the way, I'm not going to go through these. There are types of Christ, and there are some great application that can be made from these verses. I'm not going to do that this morning. Everything, the legs and the, and the cheeks and the mouth and all these things, they're, they're all, there's wonderful applications to be made to the Lord Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to look up when you get home. Let me give you some homework for this week. Here's a message you need to go listen to. It's about an evangelist that's in heaven now. Oh, brother Buster Seton. Have you ever heard of Buster Seton? One of the greatest preachers that ever lived. I listen to him all the time. He has a classic message called He's Altogether Lovely. Go home and listen to that message, and he'll explain all those things to you real good, make wonderful types of Christ. That's just not what was on my heart this morning. Now, I shouldn't have told you all that because maybe I'll preach his message sometime. Maybe I should have left that open. But Anyway, it's a wonderful message, wonderful thought, wonderful picture of Jesus Christ, all these things, his hands, his legs, his belly, his mouth, all together lovely. That's him. But if, if, if all you had, listen to me, and I'm almost done. If all you had was just those verses, if all you had was just her describing her beloved, you would not get the full effect of everything that's going on in her life at this moment. Because this is just praise. She's praising her shepherd. She's in love. She's convincing these other women to go with her to search for her shepherd. But what's amazing is, is that these verses, this, this explosion of praise in her life, they follow verses 1 through 7. And verses 1 through 7 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, she is separated from his fellowship. She has missed her opportunity to fellowship with her beloved. She is searching for him, and while she is searching for him, jump back up to verse number 7, the watchman that went about the city found me. 
They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. Here's what's interesting to me. Is that she's not angry. She's not bitter. But yet, she is standing there smitten and wounded. This praise of her beloved is not the praise of some woman who, every, who has everything going for her the way that she wants it to go. The praise that is being offered here is not from a woman whose life is rosy and peachy and wonderful and amazing and everything. She's not on the... When she talks about his eyes and his legs and cheeks and his hands and his mouth, when she's just praising the shepherd and going on and on and on with these overflowing, overwhelming answers, this was not a woman who has everything going right in her life. I'm here to tell you, this woman stands there while she's talking to these women. She stands there wounded. I don't know what she looks like. There's a lot of speculation about what happens in verse number 7. I'm not going to get into all of it. You can study it out and search it. I'm not sure if they, they just hurt her mildly or if they've done a lot more to her than that. There's a lot of speculation on what happened here. Nonetheless... She's been through a lot. She's wounded. What's amazing to me is this, is that the only things she has to say about her beloved are good things. (laughs) She's standing there wounded. She's standing there hurt. She's standing there separated, probably embarrassed. And she can't think of anything bad to say at all about her Lord. Her answer was an overcoming answer. This was a tough season in the relationship. She had failed to respond correctly to His invitation of fellowship. She was hurt by other people, and yet she's still praising the shepherd. It was a love that was greater than the hurt. It was worship that was greater than the wounds. And I believe, you'll never convince me, that it was not just her answer that convinced these girls, but it was her demeanor. It was her countenance. It was her situation. It was her experience that caused these other women to say, All right, we agree. We'll go with you. We'll try to search him out. We'll try to find him. And can I tell you, though, we don't like to be wounded, and we don't like hurt, and we don't like trouble, and we don't like sorrow. Can I tell you, God will use them for some of those powerful testimonies in your life. Words are good. Use words. Somebody said, preach the gospel. Use words when necessary. It's the stupidest thing I ever heard. You hearing me? you got to use words to preach the gospel. Unless you're pointing at signs or something, I guess. But there's words on the sign. All right. got to use words. But I'm here to tell you, listen. Words ring hollow. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And I'm going to tell you what, what adds strength and what adds power and what adds punch to your words a lot of times are wounds. 
wounds, and words. We don't like wounds, but they will make your words powerful. In fact, if you go back to 1 Peter, that verse I quoted, 3.15, it's talking about suffering as a Christian. It's talking about how we, as we suffer it, and we stay faithful and we stay in love with God, it provokes other people to wonder, what in the world is going on with that crowd? There's something different about them. And I'm here to tell you, you might have been wounded. Wounds, wounds come. In fact, man, I... Lord, I, I'm putting together maybe a whole message on this, but she was wounded by the watchman, the people that were supposed to take care of her. See, sometimes the wounds will come from people that are supposed to take care of you. They're supposed to watch over you. They're supposed to love you. They're supposed to protect you. Those are the wounds that hurt the worst. The most vulnerable. I found out when people, when they pat you on the back, a lot of times they're just, they're just checking out a good spot to stab you. That's all they're doing. And that's a part of it. But here's what's amazing to me. She's wounded, but she's still searching him for him. She's wounded, but she still longs to be with him. She's wounded, but she's still trying to convince other people to find the shepherd. She didn't get bitter. At the, by the way, it wasn't him that hurt her. Well, the people that hurt her. Here's what happened. Listen, he'll never hurt you. He's never hurt you, and he never will hurt you. If he wanted to hurt her, he would have busted that door down and hurt her. That's not what he did. What did he do? He wandered away because he's a gentleman. I'm going to tell you something. He'll never hurt you. People will hurt you. I'll hurt you. You'll hurt me. But he'll never hurt you. And when people hurt you, don't get mad at him. When other people wound you, don't take it out on him. He's altogether lovely. He's nothing but good. He's nothing but wonderful. He's amazing. Don't let other people's treatment of you cause you to think less of him. Because people will pick up on that bitterness in you, and you'll turn other people away from him. This is how the devil likes to work, isn't it? He'll stir up somebody to hurt you, you get bitter at God, and then you, get a, you, you poison a whole group of people against the Lord. There's been mamas and daddies get hurt by other people, they get bitter at God, and their kids pay the price for it. The people that they're supposed to be leading to Jesus, now they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I'll tell you what, her answer is amazing. Her answer is more amazing when you think about what she's been through and she's still saying these things. Words are great. Wounds and words are powerful. Don't let your wounds suppress your testimony. Don't let them hide your testimony. Let them be a testimony to the fact that He is worthy. And you can look at people and say, yes, I'm hurt. 
Yes, I've been done wrong. Yes, these things are going. But Jesus is still wonderful. Jesus is still worthy. Jesus, remember, because isn't that what he did for us? He was wounded. He was smitten. He was stricken. He was afflicted. He was rejected. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was spit upon. And yet he said, Father, forgive them. You know why? Because his father was worthy. He didn't let what people did to him affect his relationship with his father. And don't you let it either. She could have been mad. And by the way, she's wounded. Not, and she, These people shouldn't have done that to her. But she's out there because she rejects. Some of it's on her. And I don't mean what they did to her necessarily, but I mean just the situation. being. She, she had to have a cause somewhere in her mind just to beat herself up as well. To join the crowd and say, you know what? Man, if I don't, he, man, he'll never want me back. He'll never, he'll never want to fellowship with me ever again. Look what I've done. But in spite of her failures and in spite of what was done to her, she said, I'm not going to let that change my love for the shepherd. Her answer was an overcoming answer. It was an overflowing answer. It was an overwhelming answer. And because of all these factors in her life, it was ready, it was passionate, and it was in spite of everything that had been done to her. It had a powerful impact and a great influence on the people around her. They said, man, that kind of shepherd, you love him in spite of what you've been through? Let's go find him. That sounds like somebody I'd like to meet. And I don't, I don't have this impact like I should, but God knows my heart. That's the kind of impact I want to have on other people. I don't want to turn people away from me. I want people to be, see, be able to see my life and say, man, if he's worth serving, even while you're bleeding, if he's worth serving, if he's worth loving, if he's worth worshiping, if he's worth finding, even when you've been beat up like that, must be a pretty awesome shepherd. And I would say you're exactly right. He's greater than what I could describe to you this morning. He's altogether loved. Let's stand together.